Hello, and welcome to another Metamedia production of JW On Purpose with your host, JW Nigerian, as he interviews and discusses business, finance, self-development, and lifestyle. Hello, everybody. This is JW Nigerian, and uh, we're here today with Liz Strauss. And Liz is a blogger that I ran across on the web um, more, more and more every time I got on the web. And uh, one day, Liz writes me a little personal note, and it caught my attention. So I went and looked at her site and realized she's uh She's not just a, uh, your standard blogger. She's a uh, she gets great scores. She uh, Alexa scores, if you know what that is. Uh, she gets good Google juice, if you know what that is. But more than that, she has she belongs to a blogging community that is not only well known, but uh, well, how would you say it? I guess they're, you're well known. Anyway, how you doing today, Liz? I'm doing really well. Like every other day, I like had this amazing sun sunrise. It's all over the internet now because I took pictures and shared them. Yeah, I and saw yours yesterday. I didn't look at them today. I'm gonna usually I read a bio. I'm gonna let you um, kind of like we're gonna do it a little different today because I don't you know I don't know you that well, but you know I'm just very impressed by what you do because you're one of those bloggers that has is not trying, but has actually worked at building community and knows how to do that. So could you tell me first, what's the name of your blog? Uh, the name, um, but I have, I have lots of blogs. The name that most people know the best is successful-blog.com. Yeah, that's the one I saw. Yeah. And do you help bloggers, or what do you, what do you do? You help bloggers blog, or you just show them how, or... Well, I, that's one of the things that I used to do. But actually, when I didn't, I didn't start that blog. I started writing on that blog. Someone else owned it. It, it, it was actually started by a guy in nine, in two thousand five, by a guy named D. Keith Robinson, who was one of the first editors for Lifehacker, and he was writing a blog called Asterisk, and he wrote a blog post called. How to Have a Successful Blog. And that blog post was so successful, he decided to make a blog called Successful Blog. And he found that he couldn't, like, manage two blogs, two really popular blogs. So he sold it to a guy by the name of Paul Scribbins, uh-huh. who was a very popular uh, guy who was running a blog network, who then engaged me to write on it in October of 2005 and eventually gave the blog to me. And I was actually quite embarrassed by the name because I was very naive and didn't realize what great search engine optimization it was to have a blog named Successful Blog because everybody who goes to Google types in how to have a successful blog and they come to me, you know. Uh, yeah, I was asking you if you could kind of go back on how you became a who, who is Liz who is Liz Strauss and how did you become a blogger? Well, um, at the time I left educational publishing, mm-hmm. um, I had reached a place where I was doing strategy at a fairly high level, and there were only about three jobs left. 
that were at my level and skill set, and I didn't want any of them, and let's be clear, um, they didn't want me either, you know, so it was a happy divorce. Um, I had, were you trouble? Um, well, the, the business of educational publishing, particularly on the product side, tends to attract people who are really good at writing term papers. And um, I managed to get in through the back door because I was a writer first and then a developer. And then by the time I got my first job as a publisher, I was an executive editor, so I skipped all those, you know, those those lower-level jobs that are supposed to teach you how to behave. <laughs> and, and so I like kind of came in at the level where I could act like an entrepreneur and get away with it. Right. And, um, you know, but it got a little dicey at times when everybody else was going to get their master's degree in reading education and I wanted to get my MBA, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so... Um, I would spend about five years inside the building and then get tired of managing people and spend the next five years outside the building and get tired of, you know, having to actually execute on my own ideas. You know, because when you're inside the building, the, your ideas change. Mm -hmm. when, when you're outside the building and you, you explain to some client that, hey, we can do something that looks like this, they say, good, go ahead. And then you have to do what you said, <laughs> you know. But so probably, that, you know, there's a there's a few people out there that work the nine to five that are entrepreneurs by heart. And you know what I'm saying? In other words, they they come in their nine to five job and they're not asking what do I do. They're doing more than expected and probably getting in trouble a lot. Oh uh, yeah, that was that was me. Um, it worked really well. I was really really I was the person they hired when the company had just like then cut back from 200 people to 60 people to be the glue to put it back together again. Mm -hmm. And then when, when everything started running running well, uh, you know, when the whole department started running really, really well, then uh, sort of I became the threat. <laughs> oh. Because then I became not not needed in that role anymore and not easy to manage in other roles. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine that, Liz. By the way, you know, um, when we first met, uh, you threw me off balance because I had no idea who you were. And our phone <laughs> you started out the phone call. The first thing I said to you was, oh, I wasn't ready. I was not ready for Liz. Because um, you are kind of, you, you're definitely a firecracker. And you have a great sense of wit and humor, and it caught me. It actually caught me off guard, but I. But it was very refreshing, and I very much enjoyed. I think we had probably a thirty, forty minute conversation. Probably could have, could have recorded that and done the interview then. But um, I really appreciated uh, getting to know you, and I wanted my listeners to get to know you. And there's probably some people out there that are listening to this that already know Liz and are saying. JW, you get the chance to interview Liz, and you're not asking her all the great questions. So. <laughs> but everybody has their Liz story, you know. I'm, I don't know how else to talk to people, so I just, like, show up. <laughs> that's right. So I, I'm actually blessed. I have a Liz story now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know what? I brought you on today because um, I'm intrigued, as you know. We've talked about this. I'm intrigued not by people who... 
uh, go around the web saying that they're uh, great list builders and that they know SEO and that, all that kind of crap and marketing because anybody who has uh, five farm farm animals on uh, you know uh, or you know Farmville. on Farmville or you know or have have done something in the mafia or you know score over fifty on clout think they're uh, a marketing genius on you know social media. But I'm really intrigued with people like you who are building community, and it's obvious that you're doing that. You have following. You have a loyal following. And when I talk to you, I could tell that you got it, not only um, because it's, well, you said it best. Community is just the best way to do business. It is business. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, all, you know, I tell this story of like, um, you know, it's in my it's in my DNA. My my dad, um, my dad ran away from home when he was twelve because prohibition was enacted, and his mother owned a saloon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was the oldest son of a single mother, and he decided to run away and go get a job, so he could send some money home. And he ended up living with a bootlegger, and uh, he, he he didn't um, actually go into bootlegging, but he learned a lot about the business through the back door over the dinner table. And eventually, you know, what, some 14 years later, Prohibition was repealed, and he and his bootlegger partner opened a, a saloon on the day that Prohibition was repealed, which, by the way, is really good marketing. <laughs> Because they had, A, built their network before they needed it and um, drawn the people into the mission of this little boy who went from 12 to 24 or whatever, um, talking about how he wanted to have a saloon to, to be as cool as the saloon that his mother had. And um, and so on the day that all these people who wanted to have a drink, where were they going to go? But to the guys, the guy who had provided them... Um, their their alcohol when they needed it, and um, the boy who uh, had the dream. And my dad always called it a saloon because he said a bar was a place where rich people go to buy drinks, but a saloon was a place where you go spend time with your friends. So it really is in my DNA. Oh right, and then that's. And I talk. We talk about. I talk about community. You kind of like to put it in business terms because um, I think you've. You've. I, most bloggers. Uh, let me just. I'll say. I'll say it, and you can. You can tell me whether it's true or not. A lot of really successful bloggers are not making money out there. <laughs> A lot. Uh, uh, almost all of them. So uh, you know, about two years ago, I started using my dad's story as a case study, and that's when things became really, really clear to me because, you know. In 1933, when he started his saloon, it was the height of the American Depression. Does that sound at all familiar? Um, and and there were lots of people who weren't called homeless. They were called other things than, like, bums and hobos and, oh, and such. But there were lots of people who didn't have jobs. And um, my dad knew lots of them. And he found ways to put them to work and to help them um build his saloon. But one of the things he did that totally reflects, I mean, I, I often say that I do exactly, that I 
almost 90% of what I do is exactly the same as what my dad did. Very little is different. Um, and, for example, if you take Matt Mullenweg, who built WordPress. Right, and he has a very successful blog. Yes. And mm -hmm. WordPress is not only a platform with, what, now something like 10 million users on the free site, but Automatic, the company that runs the enterprise-level site, services everything from CNN to Martha Stewart to all of the government agencies except the TSA. And we all know how, like, together the TSA is. Um, so, um, and their first level of funding what, three years ago was at $200 million, and I think they're in their third level of funding. But they're, you know... They're now a 10-year startup, if you want to call them that. Mm -hmm. They started with one sentence, one line of code, that there was this abandoned kind of journaling codec out there, and Matt Mullenweg just put on this bulletin board, I think we could do better than this. Does anybody want to help? Mm -hmm. And a guy from London answered, and now there are tens of thousands of people in this free community who have built, like, go look at the WordPress um, codec. It's my husband, who's an engineer, wanted to print it out once, and I just sort of laughed at him. It's like, Wayne, you can't print out the WordPress codec. It's sort of like printing out the library. You know, after the first ream of paper, he suddenly got it, you know. It's, right. it's like trying to print out Wikipedia. Um They've just built this phenomenal enterprise level, individual level, a functioning thing on a community of thousands of people who just wanted to make something that was worth using. And my dad, in his saloon, did basically the same thing. The day they opened the saloon, they had a bar, glasses, bottles, with alcohol in it, and a cash register. There weren't any tables, there weren't any chairs, there weren't any pictures on the walls. Mm -hmm. And we're all, like, culturized into thinking that we have to go build Macy's, fill it full of dry goods, make it all perfect and pretty, and then invite the customers to come. Right. And strategically, as well as relationally, that's just so wrong because mm -hmm. we're deciding what the customers are going to like and, and how it should look, and it's, it ends up being all about us. Can I, can I slip in here, Liz? Is this, is this the difference between what they call now, they've coined inbound and outbound marketing? Um, yeah, I guess you could say it is, yeah. Okay. I, I, I just call it um, raising a barn and not building a coliseum. <laughs> you know, you just raise the barn. Um, so, and there's, it's sort of how growing businesses started growing when they first started growing. It's like two guys get together and they find somebody who has a good idea and says, do you want to help? And, hey, you've been there before I have. Why don't you help? But a couple of things have gotten in the way of that. One is we go to school. And in school, we learn that we have to do everything on our own. You know, it's like right. you get the A, you know, and we learn how to be leaders on someone else's path. You know, it's like stay in line or I'm going to put you back in line. You know, we learn that in the corporate right. world because schools were made to build, 
corporations and factories. Mm -hmm. So we're not very good at building businesses and we're not very good at thinking strategically because the strategy has always been handed down to us. Right. So if you want to like build a community, well the community's always been there for us. You know, now you move into the corporate community, it's already there. Now you move into the church community, it's already there. It's like, how do you start one is kind of not as easy. But basically what you do is you start with a, whether it, I mean, a business is a community. You start with a mission, a, a vision of what you want your business to be. My dad wanted it to be a saloon where people would come and spend their time with their friends. And his higher calling was that, you know, we can be together and, you know, we can make something cool happen in the in the neighborhood, so to speak. Right. And we can help each other when we need jobs and, you know, and that sort of thing. And it's that high, the vision, what, what you're looking for, I'm going to make this saloon, and the mission, the higher calling that we'll all be together and we'll make this place together is what is what attracts other people. In order to do that, you have to have your values really in line. And then absolutely. Um, let me let me just put, throw in here, um, Liz. You're going to be doing a um, you're going to be doing keynote at uh, Blogs World at Blog World. That's right on Thursday morning. Thursday morning, and um, we're talking to Liz Strauss, uh, and we're talking about uh, building community with your blog. And what I really love about you, when we were talking, uh, you weren't just about okay, I'm going to build community with my blog. Um, but you understood, uh, you seemed to understand uh, the uh, law of reciprocity, that if you're putting out good stuff, that you shouldn't be afraid to ask to get paid for that. Well, exactly. And exactly. I have a really good example of that because when I was up in Seattle recently, I was giving a talk about who's telling your story. And afterwards, we went out with a few people to have a cocktail, and a guy across the table was saying to me something like, you know, I have a really good community, but I've had to, like, build my list and monetize it, and and, and I hate that word monetize, by the way. Right. I sure. don't monetize my friends. Right. And um, he said, the more I do it, the dirtier I feel and the less I like what I'm doing. Isn't some of that though? Isn't some of that just the way you look at things? Well, and it it, it is, and it's also the fact that we keep putting ourselves in the role that we're the only ones that can do it. Mm -hmm. So I looked at him and I said, "You know what? When you were a little kid, did you ever go in the backyard and say, hey, you guys, let's build the fort?'" It's Banky and the gang. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, you didn't just go build the fort and then invite everybody to come play in it, did you? He said, no. I said, well, there's your problem. I said, the rest of the neighborhood wants to help you build the fort because then they own it and then they protect it and then they love it and then they want to take care of it. Right. And that's what you loved about being with your community was that they loved you back. So... If you are realizing that in order to maintain the community, you have to make some money, then just go tell them in some way. 
in order to maintain this community, I have to, like, make some money. And here are some ways I'm looking at it. Do you guys have any ideas? Right. And you were telling and us about how you need a vision to have a mission. Um, one of the one of the points I think of the key points of what you what you teach is um, that you need a vision to have a mission, and that mission is what drives you. What, what it makes it easier for you to do things like ask for money and ask for help and go. Well, and it's also what attracts better. other people to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that you're clear about what you're doing, you know. Um, I sat down with my business partner the other day uh, after our last um, event, and, and we actually laid down the five words that drive our event. Mm-hmm. And they were words like um, humanity, um, a gen- which means a generosity of spirit, brilliance as in the kind of intelligence that's willing in, willing to make a decision. Right. Um, loyalty was a, was a big word for us. Um, sense of humor as in a sense of playfulness mm-hmm. and creativity. And then I said, you know, let's take a look at Lisa Horner, who is um, the SVP of Citrix, go to meeting, go to, uh, go to webinar, all of those. Right. Um, go to my PC. And she is one of our uh, staunch supporters and also um, great sponsors. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to lay out an ideal client, she's the one. Man, when when we first talked to her on the phone, it was like 10 minutes into the phone call, she said, I'm in. <laughs> and um, four, four webinars and two events. And I said, you know, we love Lisa. She's everything we want in a sponsor. But if you took out one of those words, if Lisa didn't have Lisa's humanity, would she make such a good sponsor? Right. You know, if Lisa couldn't make a decision, would she make such a good sponsor? So, like, knowing your vision and knowing knowing your values in your mission not only attracts people to you, but also helps you identify who should be part of your community so that you can get it built faster. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Liz, because I happen to believe, this is just my opinion, um, that you left out the word integrity, and I'm, I'm actually glad you did, because a lot of people think that integrity on its own is a word that means high value, and that's totally not the truth. The truth is that the value statement that you lay down, if you follow it, you're in integrity. If you don't, you're out of integrity. So even if your value, so if your value statement is that I don't like uh, tall people, and every time you see a tall people, you kick them, you're in integrity with your values. Does that make sense? Right, exactly. I mean, well, a really good example is some people truly value money over everything else. Mm-hmm. And and if that's what they value, that's. That's the kind of company they should go work for, and that's the kind. Of, and if that's the kind of company they they are, that's the kind of people and customers they're going to attract. Right. Um, and yeah, the structure for their for their uh, value structure to have integrity, they have to stick to that. If they try and start acting like they care about people. It's not going to work because they don't. <laughs> it's not gonna, yeah, it's going to be. It's not going to be too. It's not going to be too hard to figure those people out after a while. Um, 
So we were talking about the mission, and you, you talk about, you know, mission makes the, the roadblocks uh, irrelevant, and knowing your mission is very uh, irresistibly attractive to others. They want to get involved in your mission. I want to go back to what you were talking about with your dad, because um, you, I've seen your talk here, and you talk a lot about taking opportunity um, because of either your unique posi position or because of the unique thing that's going on in the world. Well, let's look at you and look at me and, and look at whoever's listening. You know, we can all have the same mission mm -hmm. that we all want to change the world um, by helping the homeless, let's say. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that because of our unique position, we are not really competitors because the opportunities that will come to me because of my position will be different than the opportunities that come to you that come to someone else. Um, I have certain, you know, I might be standing at the, at the bottom of the hill. You might be at the top of the hill. I might have my back against the wall or be up against the water or something else. And every position, no matter where you are, has advantages to it. If my back is against the wall, no one can sneak up behind me. You know, if, you know, if I'm the baby of the family, you know, my two brothers were way older than I was, so I had to figure out how to find strength in that position. One of the things I learned to do was never confront them, but always like, I call it the Alexander the Great method of arguing. I always would flank them. I would always come in from the left side and say, wow, do you really want to think of yourself as someone who cares about that? <laughs> And just totally throw a different argument into the argument, you know? It's like, and they were picking on me. Because uh -huh. I knew I was never going to learn by, you know, win by strength or experience or experience of logic, you know, as right. far as they were 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. So rather than crying all the time or deciding I was a loser, I had to find a way. And actually, there was one place when we played hide-and-seek. Um, that my brother could never find me. And it was because I was so much smaller, I had found a place that I could hide that he never thought to look because he could never hide there. <laughs> and I still haven't told him where it was. So I'm not giving it up. He's going to die never knowing where I was. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to write it up in your... Um... So, but, like, you know, even in, in the case of, like, there are three major educational publishers now, basically, and they all have different personalities. One of them, uh, a small part of one of them, is really in a good position because they're so small and they're so entrepreneurial in nature that they can move quickly and they're willing to try things, whereas the other two are acting like aircraft carriers. And so they can, like, attack the grassroots end of things in a way the other two can't. You know, so just knowing who you are starts everything and knowing what your mission is. And there's that, you know, thing I say all the time. If you don't know where you're going, 
knowing where you're going is irresistibly attractive. You know, like when uh, somebody says, you know, where are we going for dinner? And everybody says, I don't know, where do you want to go? I don't know, where do you want to go? I don't know, where do you want to go? And somebody says, I know, why don't we go here? And everybody goes, yay, somebody knows where they're going. Yeah. That actually we can... backwards with me. Uh, you know, every time we get, everybody gets together and go, where do you want to go? Nah, whatever you want to do, I don't care. Oh, let's go to Bob's then. Nah, we don't like Bob's. Don't want to eat Bob's. Okay, well, then let's go to Sally's. Ah, I don't like the way it's bad now. Well, then where do you want to go? Whatever you want to do. <laughs> the people who, who know where they're going are attractive because we figure that if they know where they're going, maybe we'll figure out where we're supposed to be going. That's actually the second part of this story because this actually happened to me when I was in the service, and we were always trying to find what club to go to. And somebody told me, stop asking everybody what they want to do. Just go to a club you want to go to, and they'll show up. And it worked because they do, people are attracted to people who know where they're going. Exactly. And if you don't know where you're going, who's going to want to follow you? <laughs> Very good. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was that you talk about paying attention. I think this is an important part of uh, what a salesman or somebody who's marketing should know. And could you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, curiosity is incredibly important, but but simply paying attention, like, you know, like your third grade teacher was right, pay attention. Mm-hmm. You don't learn anything if you don't pay attention. And I, I think what it says on the slide is something like, you know, people who notice things know more than people who don't. Right. Um, it's amazing what you can notice if you just pay attention. Uh, I did a thing, I do a thing on Twitter where, um, I can actually predict now, if I ask a binary question like, do you like even numbers or odd numbers, about how many people will say which, and about what time into the conversation someone will say, I like prime numbers, and about how quick after that someone will say, well, I like palindrome numbers, and then someone else will defer into something that doesn't even answer the question, which is, um, you know, a statement on number theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just plays out in a complete pattern over and over and over again every time I ask a, 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 a binary question, that the question is yes or no, and somebody always has to come in and say, you know, something that's not a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Or and tell how me how to kind of figure out what you're doing. Right. Um, but it tells you something about people. And paying attention is not the same as monitoring. You know, pulling data, a whole bunch of data to build a whole bunch of bar graphs flattens out the data. And and I I agree with a friend of mine who doesn't trust um, bar graphs or line graphs that about lots and lots of people. We've gotten way too far into the data. Mm-hmm. What the data does is flatten out everything. And right. the minute you start calling people users and uh, eyeballs and butts and seats and things like that, you take away the individual particularities when, in fact, it's the individual particularities of the person that um, helps them decide why they say yes or no right. to whatever what they're saying yes or no. Uh, people. People. There you go. 
Let me ask the question a different way because I got something different out of it than what you explained. And so I want to touch on both those points. What I got out of it was uh, something you had touched on just for a second earlier on, and that is when you pay attention, you stop looking at what you want to deliver and you start seeing what people want. Is that, that's how I saw it. Is, well, am I off the mark? No, no, that's also true. Um, there's the whole, it's enough about me, let's talk about you. Right. Um, and if my friend Eddie and I talk on the phone and it's sort of our phone call goes like this, hi Eddie, how am I? And he says, <laughs> he says you're great, how am I? And I say, you're wonderful. And he says, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. How do you like my sweater? <laughs> you know, and marketers do that a lot. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like, how do you like my new blog? How do you like my new product? How do you like my, I mean, if we really want to know about the people we want to serve, mm-hmm. we probably ought to ask them about them. Right. Not about what we did, and we don't do that nearly as often as we think we do. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we're so, usually just in our heads thinking about what the next question we're going to ask. We're not listening to anything, right? And or we're asking them, "How do you like what I just did?" Right. Which is not the same as saying, you know, "Why do you spend your days? What do you think about when you're not, you know, on my website?" which are sometimes far more interesting things to ponder because then you actually get to know them as people and then maybe you can start predicting what they're going to do as opposed to, like, start justifying what they did. And that still dovetails with the idea of monitoring and listening and noticing things. Like, you know, the camera that's at the red light um, marking every person who, who ran taking pictures of every car that runs the red light is right. simply monitoring the cars that ran the red light. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't really tell us a lot except that 50 cars ran the red light. You never know which cars are the ones that, you know, uh, had a medical emergency or had their brakes go out or were, uh, you know, a teenage girl being chased by a stalker. Right. Um, you know, who had really valid reasons to go through that red light, and thereby we start making faulty decisions based on, well, 50 cars run the red light, so we better put up a fence. Well, well that's, that's, to me that's profound because that seems to me to be the issue with um, life in America or probably life in many places uh, as we know it now because... We, everything's got so big and so numberized. You know, I hate to, you know, say Big Brother, but um, we're alluding to the the fact that nobody looks at any, you know, in, in a small community, you always look at the reasons. Uh, well, we never do that anymore. And see, that's kind of why um, I think that the more you narrow your niche, the more you widen your opportunity. Because if you start small and invite a few people to help you build what you're building, they they come in and they, like, help my dad pick out the chairs for his saloon. They help me decide the direction I would take my blog before it even started. Um, they were the first ones when my blog became an event. Um, and so you start 
building your infrastructure to match the people who are going to use your infrastructure. So that small store that grows into the Macy's is actually being designed as you use it, as opposed to being fully designed and has to get redesigned to fit the market. And so you're building your product base and your structure as you build your community and your customer base. Right. Which is so saying it's really powerful. Not Macy's? I'm sorry? So are you saying it's better to be the shoe department, not necessarily Macy's? Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, if you look, a really good example is, uh, you know, Amazon. Amazon didn't start out being everything for everybody. Amazon started out as a book store. Right. And they added on things that look like books and things you use with books, like journals mm -hmm. and pens and backpacks and gadgets that are like books, and gadgets that book people like. Right. Um, and that's the logical strategy of moving out from where you are. Or, you know, if you're going to start serving one group, serve a group who, who, who recognizes you as, as an expert. So, you know, I'm going to say it. If you used to be a lawyer, you probably ought to start out serving lawyers because they'll figure you're credible. Um, but then, you know, when you get a, a strong, clarified niche with lawyers, then pretty soon the accountants are going to come up and say, will you do that for us? You know, and the doctors are going to come up and say, will you do that for us? Whereas if you serve one accountant, one lawyer, one contractor, you know, one sailor and one dog washer, they don't talk to each other and <laughs> and, and you're not going to get anywhere. Right. So a smaller niche um, makes you more clarified, like a stronger glass of tea. Right. Actually, that's a really uh, that that's a great point. I tend to spread out, trying to be all things to all people, hoping that I'll, I'll catch more. Because even though I try not to play numbers games, I always do, and it always hurts me. So. So, so if I say to you, talk show host. Mm -hmm. What's the first name that comes to your mind? Uh, David Letterman, Oprah. Okay. It, well, let's take Letterman. Okay. Is, is, is that the only thing he does? <laughs> no, he has a family. <laughs> he has, he has all kinds of businesses. He, he's right. a comedian. You know, I mean, he, it's a, you know, Oprah likewise. Um, but the thing is, is that, um, he's ultimately shareable as a talk show host. But if you, and, and I'll use Oprah for an example, like she runs charity, she's got her magazine, she's got her new TV network, you know, she's got everything else going on with her, you know, like we don't even know what Oprah does. If I try, if I try and remember everything that Oprah does and somebody comes up and talks to me about one of the things that Oprah does, her name doesn't come to my mind. But if I think of Oprah as a talk show host, and someone comes up to me and says, I'm looking for a talk show host. You know, Oprah, Oprah comes to my mind immediately. Mm -hmm. if, if you're only, you know, if you're the dog whisperer instead of the dog whisperer and the cat whisperer and the horse whisperer and the donkey whisperer and the kid whisperer and the 
and the yeller at adults. Um, you know, if you're just a dog whisperer, the, every time I meet a dog, I'm going to say to the person I meet, do you know J.W.? You should know him because he's a dog whisperer. He's a fascinating guy. So you're way more shareable if you're one thing. Just and an, Another mistake network. I'm making then, because if somebody, people ask me all the time, J.W., you do so much, what do you really do? Exactly. And it doesn't really matter which one you pick, although I would say that um, you pick the one that's earliest in the process. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is, and this goes back to community, uh, I tend to reach for the person I need first. Right. You know, so it's it's the guy who's going to, like, help me put up the wood to build the barn, you know. Right. Um, I reach for him first. And if I build a relationship with him, the next thing I'm going to say is, can you put up the drywall? And that's really you good. This, up, is, this is a very this is like uh, key stuff for people who want to learn branding and top of mind awareness. And I'm using all the sales terms to equate these things to people because um, it's kind of like Jeopardy. You know, you're giving the answers, <laughs> and people know these these terms, but they don't know what to do with them. And right. Well, I mean, if you are if you are the person who solves the first problem. And and the the way that I've learned to do it for the longest time is is you have to have an offer. Mm-hmm. You have to know who you are, your mission and your vision, so to speak. And you have to have an offer that you believe you can deliver on all the way down to your bones. Um, because you really can't, especially if the offer is yourself, you really can't deliver, you can't be fully expressed. And then you get all stuck in the, you know, the, the mire of self-promotion. Um, so, but if you believe down to your bones that you can deliver on your offer the way I do on my event, I can sit here all day and tell you why it's awesome. I can tell you how I build it to make it awesome. I can tell you why it's irresistible to the people I want it to be irresistible to and why it doesn't attract the people that I don't want in the room and why that's a good thing, you know, and, and why... You know, I can make these promises to you and that, that you, they'll be fulfilled um, because I know it inside and out and I, and I believe down to my bones that I'll deliver and at the end I'll ask you if I did. You know, and I can just guarantee what I'm doing. Um, when you have an offer that you believe that clearly, it's really easy to talk about what it is you do. Right. Um, but even before you do that, you really want to talk to the other person because it's not all about you. It's all about them. I mean, like the minute that you make the world revolve around you, the universe flies out of balance. So so if you're looking to find that first client, and particularly in the, if you're in that part of your you know, that beginning part, you know, that first client where, you know, I don't exactly have the track record and I don't really, you know, like, they're going to ask me where I've done this before kind of thing and I'm not going to know what to say. Um, the way the way you do it is you, you start by saying, what are your goals for the next two quarters? And then you listen. And you keep listening 
And if you ask 20 people what their goals are for the next two quarters, 18 will tell you. One won't because he doesn't know, and one won't because he doesn't trust you. Those two people you don't want to work with anyway. So of the other 18, if you listen, then you can say, well, does that look like this? And they'll go, well, it sort of looks like that, but not quite, you know, and they'll tell you more. So does that look like this? Well, not quite, but they'll tell you more. And as you listen, you can almost talk the conversation until you hear a point where you can say, well, you know, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> that's smart, yeah. Or let me tell you how I could help you with that. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is about negotiating from the same side of the table. So it's like... If you draw a circle that's you and, and a circle that's me and you lay them side by side, where you want to be is where the Venn diagram overlaps. It's like here's my circle, here's your circle, we overlap right here. Why don't we align our goals because that's where your mission and my mission are the same and why don't we build something together? Um, because that's what leaders do. Leaders want to build something that they can't build alone. Right. So if we align our goals, then it's going to cost less, and we're going to get there faster. Well, I love what you said when you said negotiate um, from the same side of the table. That makes sense to me. But something that uh, I, I had read that you had said under that quote was, use the art of persuasion. What that I have no idea what that meant. Um, <laughs> my, my, uh, my, I think you're probably looking at a slide that has a picture of a, a, a black Tenali on it. Yeah, and, exactly. And when I, when I was talking to TMC about my, my event, um, I had met the new, uh, regional manager. His name was Brian. He's an ex-Marine. He's an awesome guy, but it was the first time I met him. And we were, I was telling him about how for our speakeasy, we have, uh, we have we have an event called the Speakeasy for our networking event, and that um, it's held at Billy Deck's really hot club in Chicago. You know, and it's it's kind of a, a place that you know John Mayer and Britney Spears have events. You know, like real celebrities, not internet celebrities. Right. And it's very very cool, and how they dress up for us, and they they put um, the the bartenders dress as the gangsters and the waitstaff dresses as, as flappers and they put on Rat Pack music and we go downstairs into this really cool place and they even bring in a cloth with a bathtub and wouldn't it be cool, Brian, I said, if if we got some black Denali's to go over there and he said, well, you know, Liz, we, we have to take the cars that are in the fleet and I said, yeah, yeah, Brian, I get that totally, but just think about it. I said, and I put my arm up in the air and I said, you know, all motorcades of black Denali's driving these influential social media people from Hotel 71 to Billy Dex Club and parked all out in front, a motorcade through Chicago to a speakeasy. Wouldn't that be cool? And, and if you wanted to have your drivers dress up as gangsters, we could do that too. And the next phone call, he said, Liz, I got you some chromed out black Denali's. <laughs> And he, he did it because the vision was so fun. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so it's like people want to do things because it makes them feel good. It makes their life easier, faster, or more meaningful, you know, and fun is definitely part of the more meaningful. Right. Again, it helps to know who the person is and have listened to them to find out, <laughs> you know, who they are and what they what their needs are. Yeah, and so we actually um, made it so such that earlier in that day was the day that we gave Mark a car so that that night when they were getting into the Black Denali's, the people would have already had this great experience with a car. So they would be even more curious about the cars when they got into them. So that was also very well choreographed. Oh, that, that's really cool, actually. Um, yeah. Networks, you know, there's certain words I know you don't like, Liz. Like you, 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 not that you don't like the word community, but you think it's overused a little bit. You'd like to say this is how everybody, how business should run. Could you talk about? Oh that? yeah. Um, I just, I, I, I tend to, I, I really don't like people who talk about my community. Um, it's not, you know, it's like it's not your community. It, it's everybody's community. Um, and we, we don't really build a community. We, we, we create an environment in which a community can happen, you know, a space in which um, a community can take place, the community decides. Community is something that occurs by way of offering and accepting. It's, it's a two-way thing. You know, you don't friend a community. You, you don't like a community. You don't follow a community. A community is a two-way uh, commitment, just just like any true relationship is. You know, you're in with both feet, and um, a community like um, I often tell the story of my 27 surrogate parents is the best example of a community because. When I went to college, I used to tell everybody I had 27 surrogate parents, and I didn't fully understand what that really meant until I started studying my dad's story. And every, like, ballet class, when I was christened, you know, every graduation, everything, my dad would buy 27 extra tickets, and there would be 27 people in the audience. There were people who were customers of his saloon. Mm -hmm. And um, after, you know, my mom would take me to, like, take off my dad's costume, we would all meet over at my dad's saloon and walk down the street to the steakhouse um, because that's where they serve steak. Um, great marketing again. And we would have dinner, my mom, my dad, my two brothers, and these 27 people. And after dinner, my dad would take out a piece of paper and a pencil and talk to our server, whose name was Bernadette, and he would ask who was working in the kitchen, is Roger working, is Housecat working, you know, and ask who was working in the bar and ask, look around and write down the names of all the servers, and if he didn't know one, he would ask about that, and then write down the names of all the busboys, even the 13-year-old busboy who dropped 13 glasses of ice water all over my lap one time. And... um then he would write numbers next to all their name and reach in his pocket and pull out the big Italian wallet with the rubber band on it and open it out and count out the money to match the numbers he wrote down and essentially tip every person in the restaurant. And when I got old enough, um, I learned to put my hands
hand out and I would get a dollar. My brothers never figured that out. But um, when I got really old enough to think about it, I asked him about it and said, you know, it must be really cool to take 27 people out to dinner and tip the whole restaurant, but it's got to get awfully expensive to do that every time I get an A on my report card. And he said, baby doll, I don't know what those people are going to do with their money. You know, some will take it home and save it. Some will buy food with it. Some will send their kids to school. Some will spend it foolishly. Some at 10 o'clock at night will walk a half a block down the street to come into the bar to buy a drink to say thank you. But it doesn't matter. I want them to know I honor their work. Mm. And and when I thought about it, I realized that around that table and in that restaurant, he had everybody who helped his He had his family, his friends, his vendors, his partner, his sponsor. Um, you know, he had everybody who helped his business drive. There wasn't like this internal community and the family community and the, you know, the vendor community and the customer community. It was just one community. Right. You know, that's uh, kind of gone from the system. I kind of grew up in old Vegas. Um, my mother was a roulette dealer for nine years, and my stepfather was a pit boss, and my sister was a slot mechanic, and my brother worked for Sportsbook. And I never worked in the casino because I, I wanted to go to school and be an engineer. But um, I just remember the old days when everybody got comped and everybody got tipped and everybody was taken care of just the way your father did. Everybody was, everybody was honored for what they did in their part. And now it's all about return on investment and watching numbers and covering your ass. And, you know, it's, it, it just gets ridiculous. But I find that if, if you invest in people that way now, um, they invest back. And, and, and that it doesn't take people, money. You, I mean, you can do this in the blogging. You know, if, you do this with your blog all the time. Is that correct? Well, yeah, and I do it with my business. Um, okay. But what I find is the more and the more strongly that I live my values, mm-hmm. the more I attract people who have those same values, who who understand that, you know. And so I there, there are two kinds of people who sponsor my event. The ones who, like, um, I, I can't put it another way. They want to make money off my event. You know, they want to build their brand off my event. They come one year, they give me some money, they go away. I still only let them do what I let them do. Right. Um, uh, but there's another kind of people and, and more and more becoming the only kind of people, and those are the people who believe in what I'm doing and who share my values. And um, and somebody said to me recently about a, an offer that we have to bring the event into corporations you know, the, like the Sobcon model into corporations. And um, he said, you know, well, you live in Chicago. There are so many corporations in Chicago. You could, like, never leave Chicago and have a great business. And I'm going, uh, no, 
You're not right. Because my ideal client is somebody who gets me in the first 30 seconds. Um, in other words, it's somebody who knows immediately that we share our values. Because if if you share the same values as I do, those five words that I laid out, um, then not only do we know immediately that we trust each other, because mm -hmm. like the two people who only care about money, you trust me that when I go make a, a decision, I'm only going to care about the money. Um, right. So that, you know, you know at the get-go what I care about and how I'm going to make my decision so that when the first tough decision comes that you don't understand and I have to buy a new phone system and you don't know anything about phone systems, you know, so, okay, persuade me. Um, it's way easier because we share the same values. I don't have to, like, reconvince you and reconvert you. And that's one of the problems I see happening all the time is, like, people trying, I'm going to convert you into my way of thinking so you'll be my client. Mm-hmm. Whereas the best communities are of people, you know, who share the same values. Yeah. Um, and why wouldn't they want to support you? Um, part of what you say is that loyalty is a relationship. Loyalty is a relationship. Quality is an expectation. Loyalty is a relationship. Loyalty is not the ninth cup of coffee. Loyalty is is the trust of knowing that you're going to be the same person when I'm not there, and that and that if I need you, you're going to be there. And um, so it's like when I was at Dell, not I don't know, well, it was last summer, but we were talking about you know selling computers mm -hmm. and why did you move your customer service to Bangalore and the response I got was something like we weren't sure that people in the US would be willing to pay what they'd have to pay for North American service and I said you understand that you now put yourself to attracting people who buy for price mm -hmm. because the people who are willing to pay that are going to go where they can pay that and get that. Right. And so the people who are buying for price are going to leave you as soon as a better price comes along. That's not loyalty. That's, uh, that's, that's I know, so simple yet so profound. Absolutely. I said, if you want loyalty, don't sell me a computer. Start, start this way. Don't sell me a computer. Teach me how to buy one. Ah, nice. And then step two is don't even just teach me how to buy one. Teach me how to run my business mm. using your computers. Make my mission be critical to my mission instead of being critical you know, you're, everybody wants to be mission critical. Be mission critical to my mission. Does that make them vest? You feel that they're now vested in in what you do. Their interest is, is vested in what you do. That's they're going to make the best decisions to make sure you get the right equipment. To, those kind of things, right? That's right. And I mean, of course, you're going to go back. If if you're showing me how to grow my business, and all the other computer companies are just trying to sell me computers. Where am I going to go? 
Right. I'm going to be loyal to the guy who's helping me grow my business. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. One of the things you say is you're only a stranger once. Be irresistible. <laughs> the, the, you're only a stranger once was the tagline on my father's saloon. Uh, <laughs> and it's the tagline on my big blog. Um, be irresistible is uh, the tagline on my um, on, on my Liz Strauss blog. Um, and it, to be irresistible... It's more than being remarkable. Um, you have to appeal to the adult in me. In other words, you have to make good sense. Right. You you have to appeal to the child in me. I call it the frosted mini weights thing. You have to appeal to the adult in me and appeal to the kid in me. But that's remarkable. But if you don't, if I don't eat breakfast, you still don't have me. I'm still not going to buy a purple cow. It doesn't fit in my living room. Um, so you need one more thing to be irresistible, and that is you have to fit into my life in a way that makes my life simpler, easier, or more fun. You know, like be a super improvement to my life. You have to make my life easier. Right. Faster. That's irresistible. There you go. Tell me something. Um, you say you often say celebrate your heroes. Who are your heroes? Well, certainly Mark Horvath is one of my heroes, which is why we went to such extremes to um, to uh, get him a car. But in a more in a more generic sense, my heroes are the people who make me better. Um, sometimes when I don't even realize they're doing that, they're the people uh, who challenge me to uh, use all I've got to get where I'm going. And they're the people who won't let me fail. Wow, that's great. We're speaking with Liz Strauss. Uh, and your blog again, Liz, is? Successful-blog.com. Successful-blog.com. Um, and you're going to be speaking at uh, Blog World, and that's November 5th, correct? November 2nd through the 5th. I'm second actually the 5th. You'll the be there Thursday. Thursday the 3rd, yeah. Thursday the 3rd. All right. Everybody check Liz. I think you're at, uh, on Twitter. You're at Liz Strauss. Correct. And uh, you can find your. <laughs> do you have LizStrauss.com or something like that? Or, or on, on your blog, they can... Actually, the easiest way to find me is uh, to Google L-I-Z. I'm on the first page almost everywhere in the world. It's uh, Liz Claiborne, and then go down to about the sixth or seventh one is Liz Strauss. There you go. And you built all this organically, correct? Yeah. I hire an SEO company? No, I've never hired an SEO company. <laughs> Very good. Liz, I, I thank you so much for giving us this time today and your insights and your wisdom. Um, it's been an absolute delight for me. Is there anything uh, that you want to impart on any on, on the listeners before I let you go? Talk to people one at a time. That's the best way to listen. Wonderful. Hmm? Have a great uh, day, a great tomorrow, and uh, <laughs> a great day and a better tomorrow. That's even better. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to JW on Purpose with JW Nigerian. You can find JW on Purpose at jwonpurpose.com. JW on Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2011, and all rights are reserved. Thank you.